You are now listening to Conscientization 101, an online magazine combining reflection, music, and action through independent media. 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 I think that the only way that we're going to realize freedom, justice, equality, decent living for people is if there's a complete change, a complete change, everything has has got to be turned around and that's a revolution, it's a revolution. Okay, what's up, everybody? We are back for another episode of the Conscientization 101 podcast. I am your host, Zari Sundiata. And today we are featuring interviews we did with Black Agenda Reports executive editor Glenn Ford and editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly. We interviewed Glenn and Margaret in 2012 at the Left Forum in New York City at Pace University. And we had a really good trip. I mean, it was James's first time in New York, so he got to see the city. And of course, he has some strong opinions about how commercial and cop-ridden the city was. But it's funny because we actually got a chance to go over, by, and see the Occupy Wall Street things happening. And I mean, those cops do not play. Like, I know people think Texas cops are bad, and they're bad. I mean, but. I mean, I guess because New York is so confined and it's, it's like they're everywhere. They're on every corner and especially then. I mean, it was a mess. I mean, they were swarming on people. They look like some bees on top of the crowd. So, you know, needless to say, he, he didn't like that part. But, you know, we had fun. And um, when we were at the left forum, unfortunately, um, they put all the journalists in like a journalist pit. So it's going to be a lot of background noise in this interview. So we apologize in advance. But... Uh, the information is still really relevant, so we wanted to release it um, as kind of like a look back to kind of assess the political situation three years ago and, and you know, give people some, you know, some insight so they can kind of bring it forward, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it, the podcast includes the full interviews, both of which give a lot of perspective. So um, we're going to first start off with editor and senior columnist, Margaret Kimberly. Kimberly. All right, and we're here with 
Margaret Kimberly, a.k.a. Freedom Rider. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, James. James, though, it's cool. We're very excited. Okay. Nice to meet you. Okay, Miss Kimberly, you recently uh, exposed the establishment of, of faux liberal outrage in an article you wrote called Liberal Whores when Rush Limbaugh called calling a Georgetown law student a slut. And I call it the faux liberal outrage because, as you pointed to, the destruction of Somalia, Libya, the lynching of black Africans, specifically, uh, by the freedom-loving NATO forces, by the way. Uh, nobody, and nobody was outraged about that. And then you have Eric Holder, going to Northwestern University, saying the president can kill or whoever he deems to be a terrorist. You also brought up similar contradictions, and I really love the similar contradictions when Pastor Terry Jones of Florida was talking about he was going to burn Qurans. You pointed out the fact lucidly that uh, you pointed out the fact lucidly that people were worried about burning of Qurans was ironic when, in fact, a constituent ele element of war is killing people. Right. <laughs> And so, the idea that the main, reported by the mainstream media and, and liberals that this pastor would engender hatred for the U.S. as far as being as if being a foreign aggressor, you know, isn't going to engender some type of hate, was just ridiculous. Can you explain how these faux outrages distract people from understanding the bigger political picture as it relates to U.S. hegemony in the world? Well, you know, the, I think the problem, James, overall is that most Americans believe in state power. Whether they're Democrats or Republicans, at the end of the day, most Americans believe that our government has the right to do whatever it wants to human beings. That can mean putting people behind bars here in the United States. It can mean uh, drone strikes against little children in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Um, and so, um, because of that, our the anti-war movement of uh, 2003 and 2004 um, was more of an anti-Bush, anti-Republican movement than anti-war because there aren't many Americans who really think we should have no more wars, we should stop intervening mm -hmm. in other countries. Um, so because of that fact, the support for war as a process, it means that people will minimize that. They will talk about, um, there's always some story about a, a mullah somewhere in an Islamic country stoning a woman to death or beating yes. somebody because they don't yeah. wear a veil or something like that. But nobody talks about the Muslim women who are killed by our government, mm. killed by the Israeli government because they live in Gaza, killed in Iraq, killed in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and soon to be Syria and, um, and Iran. So, um, so that is the that is what creates these contradictions. Most Americans believe that violence is good as long as the state. If somebody wearing a uniform is committing a murder, it's not murder anymore. Yes, it's okay. And so people are outraged over. I, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a silly thing to, you know, for Rush Limbaugh to call this, this horrible man to call this young woman a slut. But really, at the same time when Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act. 
which gives him the right to detain without charge, without trial, to detain indefinitely and say nothing. All the death and say nothing. Um, for him to tell lies, as bad as the lies Bush told uh, in the run-up to Iraq, the lies he told about Libya, and say nothing. All that's left is outrage about stuff. Yes. That doesn't really yes. matter. I also think, in my, one of my recent columns, I pointed out that because Obama has staked out traditional Republican um, stances, they really don't have anywhere to go except to these outlier issues. Mm -hmm. He's pro-war? Check. Pro-Wall Street? Check. Pro-austerity? Check. Willing to cut entitlement programs? Check. So what do the Republicans have? Birth control, abortion. So this, their, um, um, the attention they're giving to these issues is partly a result of Obama having moved so far to the right that he's taken their positions from them. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like when y'all did the reporting, mm -hmm. during the election, you had all this information about Obama. He was never left. You know? No, no. He, he was never this transformative character. No, no, no. It, it was just implied that because of the color of his skin, right? Right. And he always said, I'm going to go into Afghanistan. He said that was a good war. He said it was against dumb war. Dumb war. What, what in that war? You got to, oh, yes, so, exactly. At any rate, um, so he draws down, well, actually, let's let's not forget Iraq. Um, U.S. withdrew combat troops from Iraq because of an agreement that happened under the Bush administration. Um, I'm sure you'll recall uh, the man in Iraq throwing a shoe at yes. George Bush. Yes. Bush was in Baghdad, um, appearing with the Iraqi president to announce this agreement, the SOFA agreement, SOFA, and I can't remember at the moment what those letters stand for. So that was a Bush initiative to, to take combat troops out of Iraq. Of course, there's still contractors, there's still an American president. But the withdrawal of the combat troops is not a good thing because they're going to go someplace else. Exactly. They're going to be in Afghanistan. They're, Libya, they did, and this is the genius, I call it the evil genius of Barack Obama. Nobody said anything about Libya in part because no Americans died. Um, there were NATO airstrikes. They were backing certain factions in Libya. So they got rid of Gaddafi and carved the country up without any Americans having to risk their lives. Yes. And I remember talking, engaging with somebody who was very pro-Obama. Oh, there's no boots on the ground. And my president said, that's not war. I was like... It's I, war if a bomb falls on your that, house. That's, that's what I was just about to say. <laughs> now, something fell on your house. I want to see what you... This is war. This is an act of God. But yeah. bomb don't fall down. But yes. Moving on to the next question. One of the things people in America lack is loose is a lucid class analysis mm -hmm. of political economy. And if you ask your average Joe the Plumber, you know, white guy, he doesn't even understand this. Now, when it comes to black folks who are so so left out of the margin on the margins of society, we really see the term middle class in terms of acceptability. Yes. And we can also say without even if we're conscious of it or not conscious of it, we see it as a euphemism for whiteness in this society. So in in your article middle class middle class means working class mm -hmm. you echo my same sentiments you go to state in the you go on to state in the article the term middle class should disappear from our lexicon and the sooner the better 
could you elaborate why the term has been yeah. reluctant to vanish from political discourse? Well, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, middle, middle class means, if you ask a hundred people what middle class means, you'll get a hundred different answers. Mm -hmm. For some people, it means that you have a certain income. For someone else, it means you have a certain level of education. For someone else, it means you have a certain amount of stuff. Um, <laughs> but the only thing that counts is that you have to work for a living, that you have to support yes. yourself, and that without a job, you're sunk. That makes you a working person. Mm -hmm. We would all be better off if we thought of ourselves as working people, mm -hmm. as workers, instead of this amorphous middle class. It's a way of, I think it's a way of soothing ourselves and feeling safe. Yes. Um, if you're middle class, you're okay, because poor people, we despise poor people in this yes. country. So nobody oh, wants course. to be poor, nobody wants to be thought of as lower class. We're ashamed of So you have, exactly, so you have this term that allows people to think they're okay. And the reality is, we've seen in the last four years, nobody is okay when you're a worker. Your, um, your existence, your very existence is at risk because of this system. When um, we have uh, people who thought they had safe jobs, civil servants, what was what was safer than a government job? What were you advised to do? Get a good, get yourself a good government job. Go into teaching. Go into teaching. There you go. Go into teaching. I know. And uh, so now we can see that if you're a working person, you have no safety and security. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for people to hard for people, I suppose, to acknowledge. Um, because then it's scary. Once you go out there and you say, forget this middle class stuff, that doesn't mean anything. I'm a working person. Yeah. And But once you go there, now you have to deal with a whole other, the, your old set of assumptions have gone, have disappeared as you have embraced this new thought. I find it liberating, but I, I you know, I understand it's frightening for yes. people to change the way they think about it. Okay. Okay. We, we just left uh, the conference, uh, conference room, we just left right. the beyond 2012 elections. And when you look at the wars raised by the Obama administration, one of the things you brought up, y'all are very good at bar, the, the, the erosion of civil liberties. Yes. I mean, this is a, this is just ironic. This is just our, our, our irony. But it's like it's almost like one grows nostalgic for the Bush era because, as Glenn says, he is more effective. Exactly. Well, here's the you know, uh, Bush has. I'm sorry, Obama has gotten, as you pointed out more effectively, he's gotten congressional approval, legislation for the National Defense Authorization Act. This new bill, the Trespass Bill, which you mentioned in your uh, question to us, um, the President just signed a bill, overwhelmingly passed by both houses of Congress, which will make it a felony to protest um, near, they, they come up with this new term, a national security special event, which essentially means if the Secret Service are around. Now, the Secret Service do not just protect the president. That's right. The Secret Service protect members of the cabinet. Yes. Congressional leaders. Of some, uh, maybe four years ago, I was at a service at Riverside Church and Nancy Pelosi, who was, um, I believe, minority leader at the time, had mm -hmm. Secret Service protection. Yes. So you can't protest if John Boehner or Nancy Pelosi are around, if Eric Holder is around, if Rick Santorum or Mitt Romney are around, anywhere near the president. They now have a zone. Um, I believe they came up with this to prevent protests at the uh, NATO and G8 summits that are that are oh, coming, coming up. up yeah. 
Um, but it, but and then also um, for the NATO G8 summits and also in preparation for the Democratic Convention, because as you pointed out, people are afraid of the state, and with good reason. So who wants to look at a ten-year prison term because you um, said uh, stop the war, Obama? Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite it's quite awful what he's done. And I just want to talk a little more about Eric Holder. He gave a speech at Northwestern University Law School, a major prestigious law school, in which he asserted the president's right to kill anybody he believed. He said that there's no due process, which is constitutionally protective. He said due process is not the same thing as judici judicial process. Now that's just gobbledygook. That's just a lie. And it was, it, it outraged me that nobody or very few people, the, the same, you know, usual suspects, stood up and said that this was an absolute disgrace for the Attorney General of the United States to make this statement and for him to be welcome to say it mm -hmm. at a law school. And people didn't get up and walk out, didn't boo him, didn't throw tomatoes at him. Nobody says he should be disbarred, which I would suggest making a case for, quite frankly. Um, and it is simply awful that this has become acceptable because it's Obama doing it and not Bush. Yeah. And maybe they thought if they got up, they might get on that list or something like that and end up disappearing. Well, well, you're right. You're right about that. It does. The fear keeps people silent. Yes. Uh, oh. In regards to um, one, of, one of the pieces you wrote gave me, gave me hope and inspiration, mm -hmm. it was called Iran Fights Back. Yes. And one of the things you said, quoting from the article, said, it's a, it is a good thing for people all over the world that Iran feels confident enough to threaten resistance to United States aggression. In the unipolar world, that is to say, one controlled by American interests, the only salvation for humanity is the ability and willingness of nations to push back against imperialism's dictates. Mm -hmm. Recently there's been even more war posturing towards Iran. Now my question to you is, do you really think this administration is crazy enough to go after Iran? Oh yes. They, I, I believe they are. That's I, um, first of all, Israel's demanding it. That's true. And there's a lot of Zionist money in presidential elections. Um, there's a gentleman, I'll give you, and I'll give you an, a, an example. There's a gentleman in Chicago, his name's Lester Crown, who's a billionaire. Uh, raised money for Obama in 2008, and I believe it was last year, he had his own private meeting with an Israeli general. Oh. Now, that just goes to show you how high this imperative goes. If this guy's raised a billionaire, nobody tells a billionaire nothing, nobody tells them no, <laughs> and he's the guy who helped Obama raise money, and did it on the basis of, um, and there you can, you can Google this and see it, um, I believe a Chicago Sun-Times reporter uh, printed up an invitation. Crown invited people to his home to meet Barack Obama. And Crown goes on to say he's a strong friend of Israel and he's going to support Israel and blah, 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 blah. He's, so yeah, they're going to do it. Israel is demanding it. Now, will that mean they help Israel do it? Will it mean that they... Uh, Israel gets arms from the United States. Does it mean the United States will do it? Um, it's not clear exactly who will do it, but the, I believe after Election Day, there will be an attack on Iran. Um, and the United States will do it or be a party to it. 
because that is part of the grand design. You know, uh, conservative pundit uh, William Crystal called Obama a born-again neocon. After, after Obama, show when Obama made his speech about intervening in Libya, he first showed a copy to Bill Crystal to see if he could get his approval. And in response, Crystal said, well, you know, he's a born-again neocon. So this is a man who has accepted the entire neocon uh, notion that the United States should have an empire around the world, particularly keeping control of that part of it. When you're looking at the International Criminal Court, yes. and how it's only used to persecute Africans, yes. I think you pointed that out. Yes, we've Thank you very much. We and Barr have pointed that out many times. Thank yes. you. you begin to see it for what it really is, a way to legitimize recolonization of Africa right. under the auspices of humanitarian intervention. Okay. The West's whole relationship with African people, African people on the continent or African people in the diaspora is always this paternalistic white man's burden false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Never mind that the ICC won't, as you pointed out and others have pointed out, but I've, I actually learned the fact from you, you uh, from you all at bar, ne never mind the fact that the ICC won't uh, touch any of the Western nations for the same types of crimes. Never mind the same court whose laws other nations are forced to abide by and are subject to invasion by NATO if they are in violation of these this court's laws. The irony is that the head of NATO, the United States of America, is not a signator of the ICC. That's correct. So, oh, I'm sorry. So is they so they accuse other nations of violating laws of a court whose standards they won't abide by themselves, but they decide unilaterally who's in violation of these sacred laws. Why is it important to keep this in mind when we hear about the U.S. intervening in nations for humanitarian reasons, especially with the rise of this Coney 2012 incident that everybody's just up in a heartache yes, about. Yes. Well, I, speaking of Coney, there's a, I'll, I'll just say people should read the latest issue of Black Agenda Report. Uh, Bruce Dixon, one of our editors, did a fabulous job of breaking down why Coney is a phony. And I won't repeat it. He does it so much. Top, top ten reasons that Coney is a phony. Why it's something we should pay no attention to. Um, but the United States is not a signatory of the treaty, the United Nations Treaty, which created the International Criminal Court. So when Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or anybody else in the United States says so-and-so should be tried before the International Criminal Court, and I'm, I'm sure most people don't realize this, I'm sure the average American just they assumes, don't. oh, of course, that sounds like a good thing, the International Criminal Court. Thank but, you. But we have, um, but we've decided, because we don't want to be a party to it. We don't want our officials or our soldiers to possibly be prosecuted. So we didn't sign it. There we go. But we use it for everybody else to try and get our way in the world. Uh, Gaddafi should be tried before the criminal court or one of his sons or uh, someone in Africa. Never Israel, which massacred people in Gaza right before Obama was sworn in in the end of 2008. 2,000 people in Gaza were, were massacred 
ordered by Israel. Can Israeli officials be brought before the International Criminal Court? Now, some Israelis are afraid to travel to certain European countries because they could be arrested and tried as war criminals. Um, you know, the, the Africans that they've prosecuted are no worse war criminals than Tony Blair, yes. than George Bush, than Obama, yes. than now Sarkozy or David Cameron or whoever the various prime ministers of Israel are. But it's it's essentially, it seems to me like white people against the rest of the world. That's right. Because there isn't any white person That's who right. is in the dock, in the Hague, at the International mm -hmm. Criminal Court. It's ironic that it's in the Hague, but um, the Dutch, New Air Dutch's relationship with African people and mm -hmm. their shipping. I wonder what they were shipping and experts at. I'm just wondering. But <laughs> <laughs> final lab, my last question to you. Being that hyperbolic, hyperbolic feelings of joy doesn't translate into political power. So, what black folks in this country have mistaken for power in the Obama administration won't last even if he does get a second term. I think you wrote a piece that was called After like after Barack Obama's Gone. And so, my, my, my thing, I had a, my question, main question is, what do you think the future of black politics is in this country since as it stands now, we've been effectively, effectively neutralized or and even if we want to put a final point on it, we've been exposed to the rest of the world in this country, not as opposing imp imp empire necessarily, but as wanting to assimilate in it. To put a final point on it, we want to integrate into a burning house. Yes, we do. And that's, you know, I think that Barack Obama's election is the worst thing that could have ever happened to black people. Um, seeing a black president, uh, black people have literally lost brain cells. Every time we see him in his uh, POTUS jacket getting off of Air Force One, or Michelle Obama looks beautiful, she always does, at a, at a steak dinner, and isn't it wonderful there's a black first lady and lovely black children in the White House. People have lost, literally lost their collective mind. Black politics was on life support um, before Obama was elected, and now it's dead. And there's no um, hope of reviving it until he's out of office. As long as he's in office, black people will hang on to him for dear life and hang on to him as if as he, he is more important than they are. The yes. fact that he is president is more important than whether you have a job or whether you lost your house or whether your child gets sent to, sent to war. His success is more important than anything else happening to black people. That is like the universal health care program for everybody. Yeah. Looking at Barack Obama on TV. <laughs> I love that line. That's he great. Is the universal, Absolutely. He's like, oh. It's like, an anti, it's like an antidepressant pill. I mean, yeah. you don't... Uh, up here, you might have. It seems no, like it's no different. In the South, heavy, dogmatic Christian idea. I mean, we have. Oh, you mean wait a minute? I know what you're talking about. You go to church. This is why I, I currently don't have a church, and I've decided I cannot join a black church when Obama's out of office because I cannot stand these preachers. We must lift him up in prayer. They all quote. They I don't know how they knew how to give a sermon before he's president because everything is. I call this sermon the audacity of something other. It is horrible. It is absolutely. He's being literally worshipped. He is being literally worshipped. And if you're a good Christian, that is idolatry. Thank but you. And at any rate. My, one of the things that really disturbed me, one of the things you reported at bars, how they killed Gaddafi. And um, that 
It's a lynch mob. Yeah, and what they did to him with the, that is that is the American spreading the love too. That's what they do. They spread the love. You don't want American love. And so well, any country that goes it so tries to go its own way is crushed by the United States, or they try to crush them. And you asked about Iran fighting back. I hope that um, Ahmadinejad and the, the mullahs who run Iran, I hope they know what they're talking about when they say they can fight America back. I have a feeling that this is the last screw-up. It's going to be a cluster F attacking Iran. Iran is not Libya. It's not Iraq. They have any country that launches satellites, has technological capabilities. Any country that has nuclear power has technological capabilities. I do not think Iran will be a pushover, and I think this is the beginning of the crack. I hope. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I'm looking for freedom, but how can I be free if I don't possess the key? I'm looking for freedom, not only just for me. I'm trying to get my people free. See, I'm looking for freedom. But how can I be free if I don't possess the key? You see, I'm looking for freedom. Not only just for me, I'm trying to get my people free. Salute. My name's Ayola. I'm eight years old if they never told ya My family was killed by the soldiers I couldn't even tell you what this country is Cause I've been living in the bush, no parents Just me, a couple other kids Am I suffering? We drink water from a stream that the people from the cities put their rubbish in My teeth are falling out, the new ones are coming in And if we see a soldier, we gotta run from him Cause they took my best friend the other day And he's still not back We don't know what they done to him My stomach's rumbling I'm always wondering When I'm gonna die because I wanna see my mum again And my daddy too But while I'm here I'm gonna do what I have to do Salute Yeah See this story is a representation For every kid living in the third world I'm nation I'm looking for freedom But how can I be free? Possess the key I'm looking for freedom Not only just for me I'm trying to get my people free I'm looking for freedom But how can I be free If I don't possess the key I'm looking for freedom Not only just for me I'm trying to get my people free My name's Paddy Short for Padraic And I'm not happy Cause the British came and took away my daddy, he's a Catholic But they left my mum cause she's a Protestant I'm only nine, but I got a hatred for the politicians I hate police, cause they only think one way My mum lost all of her friends on bloody Sunday And now she puts junk in her veins In a desperate attempt to make the pain go away But it hurts more The IRA don't represent me Cause I don't believe the things that they believe but I do believe that we should be free When I say me, I'm speaking for the whole of my country Give Teddy's hat back and stop taking land You occupied us for too long, Englishman See this story is a representation For every kid living under occupation I'm for freedom But how can I be free If I don't possess the key I'm looking for freedom 
trying to get my people free See, I'm looking for freedom But how can I be free If I don't possess the key See, I'm looking for freedom Not only just for me I'm trying to get my people free My name is Asma I'm from a place called Basara From a village where the fruit of life got massacred Raised on the sand, this is the place of my birth My mum died giving birth to me, that day was a curse I'm 8 years old, we lived as a father and girl Till the Americans came and bombarded my world They didn't knock, bus open, damaging the door Picked my dad from his shirt and told him stand against the wall I was terrified, the soldier looked at me and grabbed me I screamed for daddy, the man and laughed at me and smacked me Put me on the sofa and took off my shirt My dad shouted and I screamed as he took off my skirt I can feel my parts torn apart Bleeding, killed dad, left me bleeding to death watching the ceiling This story is a representation for every kid living in a war-torn nation Many stories that I lived but I never told We don't know about the lives that are getting sold Imperialism's the cause if you didn't know Capitalism, the world's all about the dough There's many stories that I lived but I never told We don't know about the lives that are getting sold Imperialism's the cause if you didn't know Capitalism, the world's all I'm about the dough I'm looking for freedom The key. I'm looking for freedom Not only just for me I'm trying to get my people free I'm looking for freedom But how can I be free If I don't possess the key I'm looking for freedom Not only just for me I'm trying to get my people free Mao Zedong, in his work on contradictions, stated that a principle or universal contradiction doesn't necessarily overlap with the contradiction that should be treated as dominant in a particular situation. The universal contradiction actually resides in the particular contradiction. Using what Mao deduced for his analysis, would you say that the dominant contradiction for black folks at this particular juncture in black politics in the states is a lack of class analysis in favor of a blind reactionary nationalist position, specifically speaking in regards to how it relates to black folks, uncritical support of the Obama administration? Uh, Kevin Alexander Gray puts it well. Uh, he says that at least the black leadership class, if not uh, black America in general, uh, has sacrificed the historical black political consensus, which has been a progressive one, on the altar of racial solidarity. Uh, and that's uh, his way of, of describing uh, this almost unanimous support for Barack Obama, uh, who does not support us. Uh, I put it a different way, and I'm sure Kevin, when he elaborates, does as well. Uh, <laughs> the, the contradiction of black politics, of black American thought, uh, is the, the, the tension between the two dominant streams of black thought. One of them is what I call, and others do as well, representationalist politics. 
representationalist politics simply demands that blacks be represented uh, in all areas of society. Uh, so it's a head-counting kind of politics. It, it demands that there be black folks in the Senate. It doesn't demand how those black folks act, what they do in the Senate, but that they be there, uh, that black faces be seen in the highest places, and uh, they, uh, a, a whole political culture uh, has been based around that. Uh, that's representational politics. That kind of politics does not demand transformation of society. It accepts society as it is, uh, uh, needing only the correction of more black representation. And then the other current in black politics is self-determination politics. And that says we have a right and a duty uh, to change the world into one that we want to live in and we want our children to live in. Those two currents have always been uh, uh, present in, in black American uh, thought. Uh, in fact, I, I think there is a relationship between this self-determinationist and representationist, uh, these strains, and uh, Du Bois's uh, idea about the two-ness of the Negro. I'm not saying that I, uh, that I am saying the, exactly the same thing that he was saying, yeah. but that we're observing the same phenomenon. Yes. Uh, and, and so there's always been this push and pull. And it's more, it's, it's, it's more complicated than taking a look at history or current black politics and saying, well, these forces are lined up over here on this side of the room and those are the representations. Yeah. And uh, over here on the other side of the room, there are the self-determinationists. Uh, that's not the way it works. Actually, these two currents are present in every black mind. Yes. And they push and pull each other and they fight with each other. And sometimes uh, they find a commonality and they, it seems that there, there is no contradiction. And at other times, there are great contradictions. And we are at the point of the greatest contradiction today between self-determinationism and representationism uh, occasioned by the advent of the first black president. I like how you said that those, it's not as easy as a dichotomy of they're over here and they're over there because they're in you, they're in me. Yes, because uh, exactly, because uh, when you look at uh, Mary Baraka's support in 08 of Obama and what he said, I remember on Brother Jerry Ball's show when Rosa Clemente was on the show, he kind of got even a little bit uh, condescending towards uh, Sister Rosa because he was saying this is going to divide the left and fascism is going to really, as if it's not here already. But uh, And yet when uh, Baraka, excuse me, Barack Obama mm -hmm. uh, attacks Libya, uh, Amiri Baraka uh, goes into a, uh, fit, a conniption fit and, and writes classic Baraka uh, uh, yes. razor tongue poem. Uh, calling upon Michelle to leave yes. that son of a bitch <laughs> at which point I said I wonder how long it's going to take for him to turn on his own and no more than a month later he's back in the same bag of, of all four racial solidarity although he 
jokes it in some pseudo socialist term. Yeah, I don't. I kind of followed him. I don't. Didn't he run for mayor in some jerseys? Some jerseys sometime back back in the day, he ran for mayor, political office himself. Baraka. Baraka was was a mover and shaker. shaker yes. Newark. Yes. Newark. Now, getting to my next question, you wrote on an article on May 4th, 2011, called The Phony Anti-War Movement. Basically, you provided facts that demonstrated when George Bush was in office, there were tons of support behind the supposed anti-war movement. But when this administration under Obama does the same thing, if not worse, and I would say it's worse, same rapacious wars on behalf of empire, the same anti-war movement is dwindled to the point of obscurity. And it seems to me that the anti-war movement is basically just an extension, the legitimate anti-war movement, extension of the Democratic Party. So what would you say is the primary contradiction with the anti, the official anti-war movement and a real anti-war movement with real principle and backbone? The real contradiction comes uh, when we understand, or we can understand the real contradiction when we realize that imperialism is not just a set of state actions carried out by the rulers. It's not just the corporations that stand to gain from the rape and pillage of the world. We live in a country that was born in genocide and slavery, and which the founding fathers perceived as a nascent empire. Yes. So it is It is from the very beginning uh, an expansionist, aggressive, uh, criminal-minded, racist, thieving entity, uh, and a, American identity, a white American identity, is all wrapped up in that. Now, black Americans, of course, live here, and, yes. and we absorb some of that, but uh, up until this point, our contradictions uh, with the with those who, uh, who claim a lineage to the founding fathers, who were the founding slave owners, um, has made us skeptical of the United States military adventures abroad, uh, and more profoundly, uh, deeply skeptical of the motives of power uh, in, in general, because power has always been white power. That's right. And, and, but that has been our, our saving grace, our skepticism, the fact that we distrusted power. Uh, and that is at root why we are the most consistently progressive ethnic group in the country. We have also consistently uh, U.S. adventures uh, abroad. I think that the, that, that the best statistical uh, example of that was a zombie war uh, taken in February of 2003, literally only weeks before the invasion of Iraq. And it asked the question, would you favor an invasion of Iraq if it resulted in the death of thousands of Iraqi civilians? Uh, 
huge majorities of white males said yes, bring it on. Uh, a bare majority of white females said, well, that's too bad, uh, but let's go ahead and invade. But only 7% of black Americans said that they would favor an invasion of Iraq under those circumstances. And 7% uh, in that kind of study uh, is uh, marginal. That basically yeah, that, the, that the black community uh, was, was firmly against that war, firmly opposed, as the question was posed, firmly opposed to the United States going into Iraq and killing Iraqi uh, civilians. And this showed, showed that, that the black American worldview and the white American worldview were miles apart. Now, the commander-in-chief, the head of the empire, the head of the empire, is a black person. And you don't hear anti-war statements coming casually out of black mouths like you did only, oh, seems like yesterday. Uh, because as Kevin Alexander Gray said, <laughs> the black misleadership class and possibly most black folks in general uh, have sacrificed the black historical consensus on the altar of racial solidarity. The representationalists have triumphed, uh, at least temporarily. Temporarily. This is a protracted struggle, so temporarily, let's keep that in mind. Well, Barack will not be here always. Oh, no. And it will be a very interesting period when he does exit the scene uh, to see how black folks deconstruct their most recent past. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to my next question. In November of last year, November 30th, 2011, you wrote a piece called, I love this piece. This is, this is how, I, this is going into inner workings of my mind as well. It was called The Absence of Draft Makes Americans Feel Immune to War. I totally agree with that. You provided detailed information that showed the absence, in the absence of a draft in this country, we've seen the longest sustained conflict in the U.S.'s history. You state explicitly, in other words, the United States has been engaged in a decade of constant warfare on multiple fronts, while the military is made do with similar, with a, with a smaller proportion of the population that at any time since World War II. Could you explain how reenacting the draft has a very likely probability of ending imperial, imperial wars waged by the U.S.? Because the reenactment of the draft will immediately create an anti-war constituency, that is a constituency of folks who think that they have something to lose from war. At present, 99% of the population uh, has no skin in this game, no flesh in the game, no genes in the game, no family members in the game. So the war is actually somebody else's war. Uh, the people who are being killed are not just other people, uh, but the people who are the people they are killing uh, are not being killed by them. So they are totally divorced from this war, except in terms of the cost. And, and the majority of complaints that you hear uh, about the war are about the waste of U.S. resources. Yes. Not the great crime that it is against the people against whom war is being waged. Right. 
my last question, but, but I, I want to add something. Uh, this, this is the success as far as the war planners are concerned, the success of the volunteer military, which was instituted in 1973. In 1973, this all-volunteer force did not have to be shoved down the throats of the Pentagon. The Pentagon welcomed it, and that's because they had an experience in Vietnam in which soldiers, and especially black soldiers, would not be supervised to their death, uh, would not collaborate with the war effort, became dysfunctional as far as the command was concerned uh, in, in Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnamese prisons were full of black soldiers. Long been jailed was overwhelmingly black. And in a riot, blacks burned it down and threw some white soldiers back into the flames. They were they were pitched pitched armed battles between black soldiers and military police in Vietnam. Uh, it was devolving into a race war within the military itself. It was a nightmare for the Pentagon. And they welcomed 1973, the day yes. that they could decide who came into the Army. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division from 67 through 70. That unit was 60% black. The 173rd Airborne Brigade was blacker than that. And the 101st was almost as black. Uh, and uh, today, my unit, the 82nd, is the whitest division in the U.S. Army. And all of the elite line units are like that. Overwhelmingly white and Latino, but very few blacks. Blacks make up over 20% of the U.S. Army, but they are clustered in the support units. Yes. And that is by design of the brass as much as the choice of black GIs. You know, once you're a GI, you really don't have a choice anyway. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they they still remember that nightmare of essentially black units not not taking orders from the white grass or from the black grass either. Uh, so they are quite comfortable uh, with the all-volunteer army, not just because uh, it successfully quarantines the part of the population that is directly affected by war in terms of danger, yes. uh, but also it allows them uh, to, to engineer, racially engineer the units so that never again will they have a black army at the front. The threat of an insurrection, so, so to speak. My last question is this. A frequent contributor to Black Agenda Report is South Carolina author and activist Kelly Alexander Gray. I love his comments when he was talking about the CBC when Obama told him, like, stop whining, put on your shoes. Kevin Alexander Gray gave a very colorful, had a very colorful response to those uh, assimilationists at the CBC. In an interview, you They're representationalists. Yes, there you go. I'm sorry. Yes, representationalists. Yes, I am right. In an interview, you conducted for Black Agenda Radio on January 
January 16, 2012, Kevin Alexander Gray stated something that everyone in our community knows but can never be discussed in mainstream media. He said that black people, some not all, and because and some not all, and because of imposed conditions of economic depravity and self-worthlessness, want to be accepted by white people. And one when one criticizes the president, black folks will, black folks will figuratively bash your head in or isolate you. Gray stated that it's not about the issues with Obama in our community because he is the personification of a black person that can be accepted by the white community. A community that is seen by us as having the ultimate worth in the world and the black community represents the quintessence of evil. Hence, he is a role model for our children. My question is this, would you say we have have a whole lot of more suffering to do before things get better? I don't think suffering uh, cures us. Uh, otherwise, we would be we would be disease free. <laughs> we would be the healthiest psychological specimens on the planet. Uh, it's not suffering that cures you. It's it's struggling that cures you. Uh, finding out uh, that you can have power if you exert it. Finding out that your brothers and sisters will work together with you for the common good if you if you get the right formula working. You see. Uh, that cures you of whatever diseases, uh, slavery, uh, and other forms of racial oppression have created such a virtual environment in your mind for. Right? So you, you struggle your way out of these, uh, these infirmities. Uh, you don't suffer your way out any more than one would suffer their way out of a depression. You know, just wait till you get to the bottom of that depression and you'll be all right. Has any psychologist ever prescribed that? Never. <laughs> you got to work your way out of there. You got to struggle. You better fight. That's right. You got to fight. It's similar to what Malcolm X said. When somebody's depressed, they're not going to do anything. It's when you're angry. That's when you're going to do something. But it's what you do with that anger. This has been James D. Stone, Glenn Ford, and we out of here. Thank you, brother. Okay, everybody, that is the end of this episode of Conscientization 101 Podcast. And this one was the full interview, as you know. So if you want to check out full interviews for all of our shows, go to Conscientization101.com or C101Magazine.com and check out our subscription benefits page. When you check out this page, it'll detail how you will have access to all of C101 interviews and much more. Remember, as a subscriber, you will be supporting 100% independent media. This episode has featured music from Logic and Last Resort from their True Talk, The Instrumentals album. The song was called People's Legacy, The Instrumental. And Logic's album, 30 Free, the track was Freedom featuring Muslima and Naz Hayes. So, as usual, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Conscien1, that is C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-1, on Facebook at Conscientization101, and Instagram at C101Editors. Also, 
Remember, we have some really big changes coming out to the structure of the website that we're working on. And we want you to stay tuned so that you can be updated once we get closer to revealing all the goodness that's coming out, all the exciting things we're developing. So stay tuned. And until next time, peace out. Peace out. Peace out.